the movie speaks. Hello, listeners across the globe, across the universe, and in the podcast world. I am Justin. And I'm Travis. And we are your partners, uh, your conduits, if you will, to let the movie speak, where we hope to take you inside uh, whatever movie is on the agenda this week, examine it, tell you what we think it's saying. Actually, Travis, what was that movie we did recently this series? Oh, good grief. The one with uh, with the uh, gentleman from Three Films and a Podcast. Yeah, uh, Rope. Rope. That was last Rope. week, yep. Yeah, ro- okay. See, it all runs together as one mm-hmm. in my mind. Did we did we or did we not actually answer the question? What we thought it was saying. I think maybe it was just so obvious we didn't even say it. Is that a possibility? Yeah, I I'm sure in the summary we got around to talking about how, you know, Nietzsche is specifically referenced and it, you know, and even yeah. in, even in the uh the plot summary at the beginning you were like talking about how they were thinking they were the Superman, you know, in the Nietzschean sense or, or whatever. So okay. yeah, it's, it's re- rope doesn't leave too much to the imagination in that department. So, well, in, so I just wanted to, you know, listeners in case there was any scratching of the head, um, consulting a therapist, you know, the, the meaning I think behind that movie is not very ambiguous, um, in that murder is bad. Murder is bad. Also, it was saying that rope is a great way to kill someone. It's very effective. It ha- right. Yeah. Right. And the the more it looks like an artifact from a game of Clue, the better. And um, if you have a trunk nearby, mm-hmm. handy place to stash a corpse. Absolutely. Yeah. And a great place to serve dinner off of. Um, yeah. It's a, mul- I, it's a I did, item. you know, th- now that we're thinking about this movie again, I, I just, you know, I, I don't mean to be crude, but having been around some dead bodies, uh, I have to say that is the worst idea in the world that I could think of, <laughs> was to take somebody you just killed and set him for an hour or two hours or whatever in your living room. Right. Uh, the body's going to do things and release things <laughs> that are going to have an odor. And um, no one is going to think that's your dinner, hopefully. Uh, I don't think they were concerned with that on set. I think they were more thinking about the mystery and the twists and turns, not the yeah. practical no, realities. No, the mystery is who, who crapped their pants, you know? Um, what happened? Uh, you know, and is it your chicken? That that's you're one way to ruin a dinner party. Yes. Yeah. Um, so yeah. Um, anyway, but of course, that is not the movie we are here to uh, talk about this week. This week, we're very excited to discuss Akira Kurosawa's Stray Dog. Yes. Stray Dog. Nineteen forty nine. And uh we're we are very quickly nearing the end of the forty series, Justin. This we're in the final three. Yeah. It's been it's been an interesting run. Um It I, has been. Yeah. I think we found more head scratching moments, but still a lot of, you know, interesting digesting of of all the film stuff we've watched so far. Absolutely. You know, I, I think that this has least shown me, I don't know about you, but there are certain movies which I just kind of assumed were just going to be a shoe in yeah. um, just like automatically classic status. Um, that happened a little bit in our, our first big season with the 30s. And uh, I, I think it happened a little more this season, though, where, yeah. um, you know, you, you see something and you think, oh, my goodness, this, you know, this is this has got to be just an absolutely amazing movie. And then turns out uh, upon, you know, actual objective viewing, you go, hmm, 
okay, maybe this is not uh, the classic that I thought it was going to be. So let that be an encouragement to you listeners. Uh, don't don't take Rotten Tomatoes' word for it or, yeah. or whoever you go to. Go watch these things for yourself, and you may be surprised. Yeah, and sometimes, it, you know, in the case of this season, things that I had, uh, you know, we try to pick movies that were kind of on- – we always use the like metric of like it's on the edge of oh I've always wanted to watch that or I've heard interesting things yeah. about it. We always sneak a couple in there that are bigger name movies too. But some of the stuff from this season has just been like that is not what I thought it was going to be. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like I'm thinking Absolutely. about like even Cat People, Meet Me in St. Louis, A Matter mm-hmm. of Life and Death. Like none of yeah. these movies, none of those movies were anything like what I like fully expected and. uh uh, I hope that keeps happening to to uh, a different effects. You know, what I mean, as we go through the decades, and yeah. this season in particular, I think has been, and I think for the last three films, maybe with the exception of Adam's Rib, we'll find that out next week. Um, the post-war doldrums really hang heavy over right. everything. So uh, that's not going away this week, Justin. Uh, for, for no stray it, dog, it's not. But uh, it definitely shows a different side. I, I don't even feel like it's fair to say the other side of the coin. This is just a, a different slice of the pie, I guess. That's still an analogy that's not really. It's coming up short. <laughs> yeah, but um, very different than uh, than our our most recent, I think, film that examined post-war mentalities and yeah. reactions. I'm thinking of Italy's um, Bicycle Thieves. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, excited to talk about this one today. Before we get into the Kurosawa, let's talk about what we watched this week. Sound good? Let's do it. All right, Justin, I think you may... Have come to the table slightly empty-handed today. Um, so let's can we can we both um, circle around the banquet table with a corpse underneath? Uh, mm-hmm. That is what I watched this week. Is that okay with you? That's okay if you provide the nose plugs. I will be there. Okay. Well, on a tangential note, before we talk about that movie, I sent you a trailer earlier today for a movie by you did. a filmmaker named Steven Soderbergh. And you the, did. The new movie is called No Sudden Move. And uh-huh. I think uh, based on the trailer, which is a hard thing to base anything off of, because as we both know, trailers can oversell the heck out of a movie and they can really undersell a movie. Sure. Or it could be exactly what it looks like. You never know. You know, um, Based yeah. on having just watched the Oceans films, 11 and 12, which I talked about last week with Ben from Three Films and a Podcast here, and uh, 13 subsequently. I'm looking at that cast, Justin, for No Sudden Move and the tone yeah. of the trailer, and I'm thinking like, uh, yeah, I would. I think this is going to freaking rock uh, based, based yeah. on the people that he's pulled together. So we don't often talk about trailers on this show, but I'm looking forward to something coming out. It's supposed to be streaming in July, I think on HBO max. Um, I got, I have good feelings about that. What did you think of the trailer? Well, uh, full disclosure, I'm sorry. I got interrupted, uh, during the workday. So I was only able to see half of it. Yeah. Um, but what I saw, I was really excited about. I think that, uh, Soderbergh is really consistent, um, as a director overall. 
I you know what, what's the movie? Gosh, I can't think of names of anything tonight, Travis. But what's that movie he did recently with Daniel Craig with another um, Southern accent and oh, Adam Driver? Uh, yeah, the car one. Um, uh, yeah, where they're doing a, a another heist, essentially movie. Logan Lucky. Um, Logan Lucky. Thank you. Okay, so I, in my opinion, that guy really excels at so, Soderbergh's. Uh, uh, repartee is not just like you know doing every kind of he's not a spielberg for sure but he is a steven yes um and i and i don't mean that as a diss at all right because kind of nobody is spielberg um for Mm -hmm. better and for worse but soderbergh really knows what he's doing when it comes to this like kind of goofy criminal movie genre that's kind of i i feel like like i'm sure ocean's movies you could call like heist comedies and and that would be kind of spot on but there's something more going on there yeah right um in in, in all of his movies and i and i think what it is at least for me is that he pays such attention the 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 comedy comes from the people um more so often than the situation it's not a lot of situational comedy yep it's it's more driven by the eccentricities of of people kind of in like another if the Coen brothers had a very distant cousin that sure. they didn't really talk to, um, that that might be. <laughs> they Steven. were estranged, yes. And uh, yeah, so no, I uh, of what I saw of the trailer, absolutely, I'm, I'm there, man. Um, S- Soderbergh is is one of my favorites. Yeah, and he's got some interesting stuff in his filmography. Like he is, he does do like stuff outside of that form, but like everything I've seen in that lane, like what you're talking about, it's like all like you said, consistency, consistent. Like even though I didn't love Ocean's Twelve. He wrangles right. that ensemble cast in such a masterful way. Like all of that comedy based on character stuff. Yeah. I, I have to give the director credit when the actors are just like funny in every scene. Even if the movie isn't good. Like Ocean's 12 is like impossible to follow. The plot is super messy. <laughs> it has characters right. that shouldn't even be in it. But like I still like Brad Pitt's hilarious. And Brad Pitt and George yeah. Clooney together are hilarious. And the whole same group is just as fun even if the movie isn't as fun uh, on the whole. Well, and, and what do you think? I mean, for me, I think that, uh, yeah, I forgot that he did Contagion. That's not a very funny movie. Um, but, <laughs> um, you know, for me, Ocean's 12 works because of that paying attention to the, the humans, the human dynamic sure. that just the silliness that moves it forward. So I, while I totally agree, like we talked about, um, I think it was just last week, you know, a, a lot of that plot stuff, it's like, what is going on, dude? This is like, this is not really fun. Right. But it, somehow it still is. And I think in maybe yeah. anyone else's hands, it would have just been a, a dumpster fire. Yeah, um, for sure. It, but, stuff gets like, I feel like they, they it has sequelitis, you know what I mean? Everything has to yeah. be like bigger and, you know, they had to go you know, international with the story and also like things that are a little bit more mundane are more complicated too. Like their gadgets and their schemes are like insane in that movie. You know what I'm saying? Like in Ocean's (laughs) 11, right? Like it's a complicated vault heist, but it's a vault heist. Like, you know, people, you believe it could happen. Yeah. Even if it is like unlikely, it's like, okay, if you were good enough and they make you believe that they're good enough, they would get it done. Right. In Ocean's 12, they're like, lifting a building you know by six inches in order right. to shoot a dart into the wall at the right re- so it it just is it's sillier and in this case it, it doesn't ultimately matter you know those complications don't ultimately matter but ag- again it's not it, it loses a little bit of luster because it's just not as tight as oceans 11 yeah. 
But now let's talk about Ocean's 13 because let's do it. Um, I think, as you alluded to last week, somebody got the uh, the audience note, the the, the test <laughs> the test audiences from Ocean's 12 who were like, I don't know what's happening. It's still pretty fun, but I don't know what's happening. Well, Ocean's 13 is kind of back to basics in a lot of ways. Yeah. Um, yeah. We're in a casino. We're back in Vegas. And I think one of the best things that this movie does is it actually makes it about character like dynamics. You know, the, the mm-hmm. plot is not, okay, well, we're, you know, kind of brash, egotistical, uh, you know, con men. So we're going to do something that other people can't do and you're going to laugh and, you know, whatever. Like that. that, that is fun in Ocean's Eleven. Um, and it kind of extends its fun into Ocean's 12. But in Ocean's 13, everything that's happening is because of a person. It's because Ruben is screwed. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and they bring in they bring in Al Pacino, which is just like a perfect move in my mind. Like I have yeah. Yeah. no problems with fake and bake, you know, tan, white-toothed right. Al Pacino. Yeah. As totally. like the villainous uh, business partner who shafts Ruben, and that what I really like about this movie is it's like okay, they they're all just reacting as characters, and we've we've bought into the chemistry that they care about each other at this point, that they have this camaraderie. It's not sappy and sentimental like to a point where you don't no. buy it, um, no. but it just it, it's a really clean thing for the plot to hinge off of like why are they doing what mm-hmm. they're doing in this movie well because th- this guy screwed ruben and they're gonna get back at the other guy for it you know it's that simple yeah. um that's the simplest part now there are things in this movie that aren't simple i mean the layers of the layers of conning that are going on in this one yeah. location in order to pull off this like m- meta heist right with right. every casino game in in the, on the floor is, you know, again, I think it strikes a balance of being unlikely, but believable with this cast. Um, I honestly didn't have, I didn't really have any main, like major concerns with it. Uh, I, mm-hmm. I, I think I had just about as much fun with 13 as I did with 11. Uh, what did you yeah. think of 13? Cause you've seen, you've seen all of them too. Yeah. Yeah. No, I, I think the same thing, man. It's, uh, I think without 12, 13, kind, it's, it's a weird trilogy. Um, because 11 is great. I don't think many people would disagree with that. 12 is kind of divisive. I think you and I have a pretty tame reaction. Yeah. Um, I've talked to other people who just like hate it uh, vehemently. And like, like I get, I mean, it's, it is different than 11, right? For the reasons we already discussed. And then 13 doesn't really seem to, it, it, if one of them is kind of milk toast or kind of lukewarm, um, it, it would be this movie. For me, it's not really lukewarm. Yeah. Um, again, because of the people. Uh, the cast is an incredible again, um, and and so it's a heck of a lot of fun. But I think with what I was trying to say is without twelve, I think thirteen is just kind of like a like a soft wind that it's like oh yeah. that was a pleasant breeze and then yeah. it's over and you've you've forgotten about it. But but because of twelve, I feel like thirteen takes on uh, it, it has more muscle on it. Yeah, it has more more meat. Um, that you kind of you're when you're watching 12 you're like okay even if i like this and this is fun i do miss what 11 had and i think 13 has that in spades like you're talking about the test audience um you know getting the memo across to the studio maybe so it it does kind of feel like a little bit i don't know man i i haven't sat down and had dinner with soderbergh lately um (laughs) and you may have 
But um, I, I, I get the feeling this is more of a studio. 13 feels like the closest thing to a very studio heavy mm-hmm. in the Oceans franchise, which is not to say it's um, Batman versus Superman or uh, that's not the one I meant to say, Justice League. Yeah. Um, right. But it's still just like, OK, we know we know what what we need to make a movie like this work, but it's still not quite. It's not perfect. Not quite right? as inspired as the first or something. Yeah. So, and I think, again, and Soderbergh gets just as much credit, I think, as the cast here. Um, because of the people involved, there's enough that it doesn't sink at all. Yeah. But, you know, even things like, imagine if the first one was to pull off an earthquake to, you yeah. know. I mean, people would be like, what? No, we're not doing this. But it kind of um, becomes almost James Bondish, sure, I think, for sure, because of Twelve, especially where people are jumping through lasers like Mission Impossible on steroids. <laughs> yeah, um, you know, and so I, I think at this point it's like, okay, it's an earthquake. I know earthquakes are real, so maybe you know. So I, I don't know, man. I, it's it's a lot of fun. I would definitely recommend people see it, especially if they've seen or enjoyed one or two of the other movies. But um, yeah, yeah, it's uh, the, it, it still leaves something to be desired. I do love this one little exchange with uh, Carl Reiner's character in the lobby. You know, Carl Reiner plays the like, yeah, the like. I don't know. He's he's an actor essentially, but he just plays all sorts of weird characters for their cons. He's sitting in the right. lobby and he's kind of playing like one of these soft open hotel reviewer guys or or whatever. And Al Pacino's walking through, you know, barking orders at people, and he says, "How's your?" How's your experience at the, it's called the bank, which I think is great because his name is, is whatever bank, Eli bank or whatever. And, uh, and he says, Oh, I have to say, Mr. Bank, it's, uh, my experience so far has been aces, you know, and Al Pacino, (laughs) he's like an ace of diamonds. I hope, you know, it's like, so it's, it's like perfectly smarmy in the way that it's cast and delivered. And there's some stuff in there that's just so pitch perfect. I think the, like the earthquake stuff, like how that just gets, like you said, totally James Bondy. That's what I was thinking about 12. It's like, I don't know how you go back from 12 to just really simple stuff, but if you right. just take 12 out of it for me, I think Ocean's 13 is a great follow up to 11 if you just. Hmm, okay. Because, like, I, the, my last note on this is I got to the end of the movie and I'm like, Julia Roberts and Catherine Zeta Jones, neither of them were in it. And I, I didn't care. Like it, they did. Mm. They gave them so little to do in the first two movies that, like, they, I think trimming the fat in some of those areas is a really good choice because, yeah, yeah, maybe it's studio or whatever, but like they know what they had, and for that reason, it works. It's a solid three out of five stars. You know, where the first one is, you know, yeah. closer to five or four or four and a half or whatever. So, uh, that's oceans for you people. And uh, now it's time. It's time to venture back to 1949. And uh, get into Kurosawa's Stray Dog. So in our intro section, uh, let's talk for a moment about Kurosawa. Because this is the first of his films we've covered. And um, I think it, you know, we, we usually try to ask each other the question, have you seen Stray Dog? The answer uh, for me is no. And I think, Justin, for you... It is a no. Yeah. But I think you may have seen more Kurosawa than me. I'm, you know, I'm going to put all my cards on the table here. Like, I've never nor have you or both of us collectively ever been like, hey, we are freaking experts at film. We went to seven film schools. 
don't even talk to me about, you know, Roberto Benini and anyone else who sounds fancy. Like it's, I think uh, this is the first Kurosawa movie that I've seen in its entirety. And I was realizing that kind of as I was doing some, some research and stuff. But uh, what's your kind of Kurosawa experience over the years, Justin? Uh, well, I first heard about him um, from, you know, watching all the behind-the-scenes Star Wars stuff I could yeah. when I was in my teenage years, I think. Um, and, you know, learned that a lot of that, uh, you know, the swiping uh, transitions and, and even some of the... Just, the, I mean, Star Wars is its own thing, for sure, right? Yeah. It's not like Kurosawa did a space western, too, but... Um, that it was obvious that Lucas self-admittedly lifted um, some stuff, not just cool transitions, but plot devices and things from Kurosawa. Sure. So, uh, yeah, I, I since then I have seen um, a number of his films, um, Yojimbo, uh, Seven Samurai, um, this one, obviously, um, and gosh, there is a couple more. Rashomon, which you talked about Rashomon. a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. so uh, definitely a, a big fan and, and continue to be a, a, a of the little I've seen anyway, right? He's obviously a much more prolific filmmaker than the few I just mentioned. But um, Stray Dog reinforces, I think, why this guy um, is kind of a legend in yeah. cinema. So Seventh Samurai is like noted as a direct, you know, it was remade into The Magnificent Seven, essentially. Yeah. Um, Yojimbo and Sinjuro, which are, you know, a, a movie and then a sequel, uh, those directly inspired Sergio Leone's Man With No Name trilogy. And then we have Rashomon, which Rashomon is a like synonymous term these days with like, oh, it's like a Rashomon sequence, right? Like, and you think about, um, the most recent example that is so obvious is The Last Jedi, right? Where you have the sequence with Luke and Kylo Ren and you see it from his perspective and then it, you see it again later and then you see kind of the full bearing yeah. out of it at the end. So that's like a whole technique that is literally based on a Kurosawa movie, which you uh, described a, a couple weeks ago. And then The Hidden Fortress, I think, is the most blatant, like direct example that George Lucas himself has has cited. So, I mean, there's, there's no question that Kurosawa is so like inspirational and foundational to like everybody who would come after him for a long time. And, you know, you even have like the most obvious ripoff king of them all, Quentin Tarantino, right? And you can see how Tarantino is uh, inspired by exploitation films and Kung Fu stuff, but like also Kurosawa and his prestige, you know, prestige filmmaking or, you know, higher level filmmaking for lack of a, a better way of classifying it. There's some stuff in this movie that I was looking at that I was like, okay, Tarantino was paying attention there. There's no, there's no question, right? That he is incredibly effective to the rest of the film industry around him. Yeah, I, I totally agree, man. You know, I've heard it that, um, Lucas and Spielberg actually harassed some studio uh, near the end of Kurosawa's time. This may have been early 80s. And they were, uh, Kurosawa was trying to get another movie made. And, and believe it or not, he couldn't get the, the financing necessary or something like that. So Spielberg and Lucas both petitioned and said, Look, this guy, this guy's amazing. He, yeah. he inspired us, you know, give him some money. So. Uh, the studio did eventually, and he made a little movie called Ron, and uh, safe to say there was uh, justice in the end. But if you want to know, if you're ever curious to know, maybe you are, if you're listening to us babble on week after week about where you know certain people got inspiration, like Travis was just talking about with Tarantino, um, Kurosawa is, uh, I mean, 
to say he's a master uh, is probably a little bit of an understatement, and he's just a guy that it, you're going to see certain shots, certain techniques, certain ways that scenes are conducted, um, and go, oh, this is, you know, it's yep. like going and finding out how the sausage is made, That's except right. yeah. you're excited about it. Yes. There's no bad parts going in. It's exciting sausage, yes. It's lean, beautiful mm-hmm. sausage. And uh, let's get into Stray Dog. What do you think? Let's go. All right. Well, this is the section that we have so lovingly titled What's It Saying, where we talk about the plot of the movie. We discuss uh, the titular question. What What is the film trying to say? Um, I think one thing we'll keep uh, harping on over and over is we've we've had some movies in the past, you know, three seasons. We're almost to the end of the third here that like we've had to struggle a little bit to to answer that question because the movie is a little on the shallow side. I'm not convinced that anything Kurosawa has made will leave you guessing what what it's <laughs> saying because he's this thing is packed with messaging and depth and thematic stuff that is so consistent and well woven in but it's in this case in the package of a genre movie right like and i i say that only because kurosawa isn't known as like a noir filmmaker or something he is he is really diverse like you have stuff in his catalog like the seventh samurai and yojimbo and stuff that are like you know classic japanese films and they take place, you know, of a time period and whatever. Stray Dog is maybe like aesthetically closer to the noir stuff that we have referenced and even talked about in, fo- in length uh, on this on this uh, podcast. Stuff like you know the Big Sleep and the Maltese Falcon and um, all all of those classic kind of film noir Humphrey Bogart vehicles. Uh, this this really kind of looks and feels a lot like those in in, in a lot of ways, don't you think, Justin? Yes and no. I mean, I can definitely, yes and no in that I think you're right either way. Like, I I think that's there, that that tonal, the similarity is like the the setting, right? Like, we're still in the 40s. That's Nora's heyday. We're talking about detectives trying to track down people doing bad stuff. I mean, that's that's kind of every noir movie. Um, But this is a lot more, we've talked about noir being super stylized, short on emotions, a lot on, you know, style therefore stylized um obviously that's how i developed that thought to completion that's beautiful um but uh, thank you um you know that this to me is so human and is so interested in talking about very uh, timeless kind of themes um and and being more psychologically um invasive with its characters yeah. that that to me it is i think you could totally call it a noir movie but but for my money you'd have to admit to that um, it, I don't think that's its aim necessarily. No, so while, yeah. while you could definitely fit it into that category, I think it has a lot more to say than, than most other noir movies even try to. Yeah, I think you're right. And that's, that's something that, uh, I was noticing because, you know, we've just gone through a run here where we talked about, uh, rope, bicycle thieves, a matter of life and death, which is on another planet, uh, the big sleep, uh, and then stuff like the great dictator and M and, this plot is as simple as a noir movie ever is to me. Sure. The plot. Uh, but like you're saying, the character exploration, the themes and everything that he kind of puts forth here. And you really see all this stuff play out and get tied up in a really nice, tidy bow uh, is is w- more ambitious. It's definitely more ambitious. Um, the plot summary, on the other hand, is like we said, it's, it's like a dime store paperback. It's uh, right. if you look at IMDb, for instance... 
During a sweltering summer, a rookie homicide detective tries to track down his stolen Colt pistol. That really is the plot of the movie. It's as simple as Bicycle Thieves, Justin. Yeah, no, it absolutely is. And speaking of that really short description, I'm curious to know when, wherever you watched it, however it was translated, because I know this is available from different sources, and I don't know if they all use the same real or whatever yeah. but obviously you and i are not yet experts in japanese unfortunately not yet um i know that listeners are probably discouraged to find that out but we have to be honest yeah um and so you know the the very beginning of this movie is you know he's essentially he's confessing in like the first scene practically that he's lost his cult now for me travis when 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 he's describing his cult they show him holding this tiny this baby cult it's a it's it was called a Colt Pocket, a nineteen oh eight Colt Pocket. Yeah. And he says he's describing it to his lieutenant and he says it's a Colt revolver and then they show it and I thought, what is going on? Yeah. You know, it's just like I, I don't know that that's like if you're totally unschooled with guns, that's totally fine. Yeah. But it would be kind of like um showing like if he was talking about a stolen vehicle and being like, yes, sir, they stole my 4x4 pickup, and then they show a picture of a Ford Pinto. Yeah. It's like, um, yeah, exactly. I, I don't understand. So I, I don't know. I didn't have any different experience than you. There definitely was the word revolver in that scene and in my subtitles. However, uh-huh. I did read that in a in another country, uh, I don't remember which one it was now, and I've lost track of that note, but in another country, this movie was titled, like, you know how international titles get screwed up sometimes because yeah. of translation? This movie was titled Revolver. So it's, I think, (laughs) yeah, I think, I think it's just like complete like gun ignorance. And it's like, oh, the word revolver is synonymous with the word gun. And that's obviously not true. It's a subcategory and it's a totally different mechanism and and all that stuff. But I don't know if that made it into the, the Japanese script and then got translated correctly, or if it just, the subtitles we have now are somebody was like, sure, revolver. It's the same thing, right? Yeah. But that that is interesting. Listeners, this would be a really cool podcast if this was the kind of podcast where we're like, well, to help us get to the bottom of this, here's our friend that's an expert in Japanese speaking, and then they kind of, you know, fill us in. No, we're not. We have no money, um, we have no none. talent, really, yeah. um, and, and are just barely getting by on life support. So, exactly. sorry. Yeah. We don't have an answer for you. All right. So, it's a simple story. It's about a new detective who loses his uh, cult pistol not his colt revolver uh and uh that gets stolen from him on the bus and the rest of the movie is him trying to track this gun down but it's a lot more than that right because immediately we see an emotional reaction we see him uh react to this in a way that it's like it's a it's it's from the beginning it's about more than the gun right and uh for me because we just did bicycle thieves so recently i can't not compare these two movies right they're a year apart absolutely they're both really a snapshot of post-war this country, right? So Italy, and then in this case, Japan, and both about a man who lost an item that was precious to them. And I think, Justin, because we'll get into specific characters here, but what what I think this movie does really, really well is it makes it clear that although this, this gun means a lot more to him than just, oh, this was my gun or something, this or in the case of bicycle thieves, oh, this bike is just a bike. You know, they, they really beat you over the head with that message of this bike is my life. You know, it's my livelihood. It's my, right. it's my everything, right? And that neorealist form 
because there's no stylized anything to go along with it, there's no like plot points kind of bumping along and twists and turns. It's really just like watching a really sad, sweaty guy with his son run around Rome. Um, that that got really exhausting. And like, I think we called it a punishing experience. In this case, yeah. it, it comes off totally different. Like he, 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 he puts so much more meaning on this, on this item, but the, the way that it's written and the way that it's acted and filmed make it so much more compelling. And that has a lot to do with the performances and the, the characters that they put on the page. So let's center around um, Detective Murakami, which is the lead character played by Toshiro Mifune, and uh, Detective uh, Sato played by Takashi Shimura. Uh, they're kind of the center of the story for the bulk of it. Although Sato doesn't make an appearance till till quite some time, but he he really becomes one of the most important people so what what did you what did you think about these two on screen well i mean the, the movie is all about them right uh mufuni as uh, uh detective murakami is you know so green but but man uh, mufuni is such a good it, there's no overacting dude the the guy is just like i think hirasawa said something one time like he's able to convey in three feet of film what most other actors need 10 feet of film yeah to uh, accomplish and so so i mean the guy can go from zero to 60 in no seconds at all but it's always believable for me at least um having seen him in some other stuff it's it's like the, i i believe that this guy would you know take things so hard you know later in the film when um, Sato is has been shot, and you know he's he's just begging him not to die in the hospital. You know, I mean, I, especially in this era, I think it's really common to find overacting. You yeah. know, especially with really dramatic stuff like that. Sure. Um, but I, for me, it's it's not, and and I think part part of it's cultural, right? Um, just to, I mean. <laughs> The kind of like the the reserved um, individualistic uh, man with no name, you know, kind of like emotionless almost kind of became an archetype for certain Westerns and I think is maybe representative more of Western kind of cultural sure. values. We're not trying to be super smart here show, but I, I'm just bringing that up to say that, you know, compare that with the Kurosawa films, usually starring Mifune, um, where, where he is that character that the man with no name was based off of. Right. And there's such an incredible uh, range of emotions displayed, and that's not something to be ashamed of. Um, it, d definitely not for the audience that was, you know, watching that. Where, where I remember, at least as a as a younger man, you know, watching that for the first time. I think some of my I, I can't remember if it was a if it was a Japanese movie or a Chinese movie, but just emotions are expressed differently on screen, um, especially in this the time period. And that was just okay. That was just normal. So, yeah. Um, anyway, that's a roundabout way of saying I, I really enjoyed Mifune's um, portrayal. I think the guy's pretty phenomenal in that um, his, his you know, kind of, um, I don't know, his, his uncle or, or you said kind of a brotherly relationship. I think that's totally on point, too, with yeah. Sato. Is, it, it just it feels very natural. I mean, those guys are both incredible, uh, Mifune and Shimura, yeah. um, I think. And so I'm not just trying to turn this into a, a love fest or whatever, but I mean, it, it's earned. I it's think. good guys... and we love it. So let's have a love fest. Yeah. It's fine. Okay. Well, we'll have a love fest then. <laughs> the, uh, the contrast between the two characters is essential to me. You know what I mean? Like these, these two guys are of from the same cloth, but in two different like eras of their life, you know? Yeah. So exactly. like you have, 
the older cop, uh, Sato, who is way more jaded in a lot of ways to the world. He's in some ways wiser, but in some ways more jaded, and it's complicated in a good way, I think. And then you've got Mifune, who is you know, pretty much brand new, and this whole story is about him like getting his first arrest, essentially. And he sees different shades of humanity in people that Sato does, you know, like he, he tends to see the better in people or feel more sympathy or at least like burden himself with more guilt over this particular scenario. And that changes right over the course of the film. I think you see him get hardened by the world pretty quickly over the course of the story, but you have like one guy who is incredibly insecure, especially at the moment because he lost his gun and he, I think it's a lot. You know what I mean? I really feel like he went a long way in his performance to, to, to portray that the loss of his pistol means like he's not a good cop something bad could happen with it. He makes that clear with verbal, you know, cues all over the place. And also like he emasculated by this idea that like some other person could take this from him and he wouldn't know what to do because he has no clue. And then you have Sato who's like, he's cool, man. He's like smooth and resourceful. And to me, I saw him and as I'm watching his performance kind of unravel and and come together, you know, near the end of the film, I'm like, he is like Humphrey Bogart at his best, you know, in a lot of ways. And that's where you see, at least I see the noir imprint here is Sato is our like Sam Spade. You know, he, he's seen, he's seen it all. He doesn't really have any, he's unflappable, you know what I mean? But he's not like some sort of dead block of wood kind of a character. And the contrast between those two plays itself out as the story unfurls and the plot points make their way I think one thing they do really well with with Sato is they they give us things to attach to him that make him more than just an archetype, right? He's not just a Sam Spade who sounds amazing and looks cool and has the answers. He also like invites Murakami back to his home to see his children and share a meal with him. And that happens kind of at the midway point in the movie where like you're invested. You know, this guy, this guy might might think in a little bit more black and white terms or a little bit more absolutist way about approaching the job. Uh, but he also like, he's, he's a human, you know, he's a human being with a, with a wife and a family and, and things to lose. Yeah. I mean, I, it, there's nothing to disagree with there, man. Um, podcast is over everybody. <laughs> that's it. He's got stuff to lose. And, you know, when you talk about him being more jaded, I think that's totally fair, but I think it's almost, uh, it's not jaded. Like, if you think an American cop has been jaded, I, I think generally that brings up a different person mm-hmm. than we're, we're experienced, you know, we experience here. And I, and I think part of that is is the time period, too, right? Like, yeah. Um, again, if we can, talking about guns in this movie, I, I think we're seeing a lot of uh, even, like, the evolution, not just of these characters in this movie, but kind of the times are changing uh, with law enforcement and, and what is its role um, you know, d- d- sh- should it be armed? Because like arming police, I mean, police have not been around forever, right? And so arming them is has is not an extraordinarily ancient concept by any stretch of the imagination. So, um, you know, I, I think you see that in that it, at first, you know, uh, uh, Murakami has his Colt uh, just in like his suit jacket pocket. I mean, and it is a pocket pistol. It does fit there, guys. Right. Um, um, it, th- then it's stolen, right? Because in the pickpocket, are, do they even expect to find a gun in there? Probably not. They're right. probably like, "Hey, some money. What, what do you got in here?" But but w- how acceptable would that have been? You know, b- back then in the 30s or in the 40s, like, 
hey, if you're going to take a gun out and you're a detective, yeah, dude, put it in your boot, put it in your shoe, put it in a pocket. We don't really care. It is interesting that when uh, Murakami gets another pistol, he now has this huge, which is common for the era, but he has this huge uh, belt holster on to secure it, right? Uh, It's not like you're not going to, I mean, yes, you could still take somebody's pistol from them with that on, but they're probably going to know about it Mm because they have to, you know, unbuckle the flap and take a giant piece of leather out of the way to get it. So I I just thought it was, and and compare that with Sato, who, who doesn't even take his gun with him to work every day. Right. Right, and he's like, "Oh shoot, man, I'm, I'm I'm super squared away. I am a cop that knows what's going on. Also, I didn't bring my pistol today, and that's okay. Can I borrow yours? Yeah, like what? Yeah. You know, I mean, that's that's really insane. I think, especially thinking in a 2020s American policing perspective. Sure. But I don't think that was like, oh, you know, the movies. That's La La Land. Who knows what Tokyo Police Department did in the 40s? But I found it totally believable." Um, g- given the changes that I know took place, at least in the West with policing, that that was just like, you know, that wasn't as much a part of the job. You know, yeah. still today in the in the UK, most cops don't carry guns, you know. So um, it's just that that just was kind of like, no, the job is go out there and, and solve the problem, right? Yeah. Which has always kind of been the police's role. Go Go be a part of the community. And if there's a problem, go solve it. And if it doesn't take a gun, it doesn't take a gun. And that's okay. So I did find their, their kind of, the the way that guns are approached, you know, even when, uh, you know, this guy's like, gosh, I've I've lost my gun, Lieutenant. I, I'll take whatever punishment you give me. And they decide on, um, what is it, Travis, like three months, half pay yep. or something like that. Yeah. So I, I just felt like from the get-go, you know, this is not the same universe sure. as Bicycle Thieves. Yeah. Because in Bicycle Thieves, this guy is like, oh, my crap, I don't have a, my bike. I have nowhere to go. I have no hope in life. And here is a detective that has literally lost a tool of deadly force, and his department's like, dude, you screwed up. But you know what? We're just going to take some of your pay. Like, what? It, dude, if any nation had a right to be depressed in the post-war period, right. uh, I think it would be Japan. Right. They got nuked twice, right? But here we're shown over and over again, not just from Murakami and from um, uh, Sato's perspectives, that you can go on. You yeah. can make progress. It's okay. Yes, we're going to make mistakes, but we keep going. There's a beautiful scene where Murakami is confessing to Sato, like, ah, it's my fault. I think he's got my gun. He lost my gun. Now he shot somebody. Uh, you know, and he's really beating himself up about it, which is totally believable and understandable. But I think there is a, a large measure of, of true wisdom. I, we could call it jadedness, I guess. But he says, yeah. he says, look, man, if it wasn't a cult, it would have been a browning, yeah. which is just another gunmaker. Yeah. Um, so and it's just like, yeah, unfortunately, right? Like, dude, you didn't you didn't give somebody that gun. Somebody stole it from you, and they did bad things with it. Unfortunately, that's that's the way the world goes. But what Sato tells him is like, dude, you can't you can't just feel like you can't be all sentimentality and all emotion in this job because you're gonna. I think he tells him at one point, you're gonna get nowhere. That'll get you nowhere as a cop, right? Which is is totally true. Like you still have a job to do. So yeah, I mean now you have <laughs> now you have another problem that's not just in the community of its own volition. You've kind of helped to get there, but now you've got to go fix this. And and like it's okay. I will help you. We can all help each other. We'll go find some citizens. And and man, Travis, look at the citizens in this movie. Most of the time. Um, you know, they're, they're, they're asked by the police for something and the vast majority of the time they're like, oh sure, whatever. 
there's no like, well, can you grease the wheels, you know, or or these other things that are tropes or 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 just reality um, in in Western cinema or life. And so I I think you just the, the difference here. The sorry, the larger point that I'm taking a really long time to come to is that to me there is such a huge difference between. It, I don't think either of these movies do this. To be fair, but if you took Bicycle Thieves as Italy's statement post war and Japan's statement post-war, and said, hey, this is this is where we stand, and this is how we go forward. I don't know how you could compare those and go, yeah, okay, they both make sense. I mean, I go more like, shame on you, Italy. Like, you didn't really even <laughs> lose. And you're, like, down in the dumps. Like, what the heck is going on? Meanwhile, the pe- people that went through a nuclear holocaust are like, hey, it's all right. Yeah, we'll get through this. It'll be cool. Um, so j- just just the level of resiliency that is displayed in this movie and of like humility and, and compassion for your fellow man, I think is really commendable and, and really fun to watch. Yeah, I think one thing that I noticed from the the tip top that works its way all the way through the film as um, it's it's like a visual motif, but it's also a storytelling tool to reinforce theme is, is the weather, right? Like from scene yeah. one, you get like, this is a hot, sticky, like nasty movie everybody's sweating and mopping their brow and complaining about the heat and everybody's how do we get out of the heat here have a cold beer because it's hot you know all that stuff and it really like it it goes somewhere though like i was expecting that to mean something or just be a really weird thing that people keep bringing up like i get it like some days are hot some weeks are hot but (laughs) if you get to say it like a hundred times it better mean something and it really does because yeah it starts as being you know hot and sticky that that persists through the the initial chase and him his real frantic f- initial response um which i do think justin like is interesting like, like Mur- murakami is portrayed as you know he needs wisdom from from sato right like he's he's inexperienced yeah. and he needs that wisdom but at the same time like i just felt for him like and i just bought all of that too yeah. like i i absolutely you know trying to live vicariously as i'm watching this movie and i'm like i'm i would definitely be more like him than the other guy because you know i'm not a cop and i should never be a cop but like as as a human being i'm looking at this other human being thinking like if i had lost my gun and i saw one crime get committed with it and i was like what's the next one going to be like it's a hard thing to wrangle you know as a yeah as a person in the world um but the weather works itself into the story in an interesting way because there's a specific line where he says, I have a feeling something bad is about to happen. And then we see the sky turn, right? We hear like thunder crash and the rain is like, it's coming. You know what I mean? So it's yeah. this really great, it's, it like gets away with being on the nose somehow. You know what I mean? Like as, as the story's winding into the third act and everything's kind of falling into place with the mystery of who this guy is who stole the gun and how they're going to track him down. It then begins to pour rain when the the proverbial uh, doo-doo hits the fan, really. Um, so this story, you know, it has some twists and turns. We're not going to lay out every plot point for you because go watch the movie. But suffice it to say, there is a, a killer like last half hour to 40 minutes of this movie where, in my opinion, every sequence is like just kind of brilliant. Um, the one that I want to start with, Justin, as we work our way to the end of the story is this murder, right? So first it's uh, someone gets shot, but they don't die, right? And they find the bullet so they can identify the gun. He goes and digs out the bullet that he shot into the stump so they can verify, yes, this was your gun. And then the next thing that happens is 
he they they get called to the scene of a murder, right? And then they they realize this is the same gun too. But what's great about that sequence are two things in my mind, and let me know what you think. The first one is we never see the body, right? Like they look down yes. off frame, and the doctor says something about like I'm her I, I'm her doctor, and she would not want me to see her like this, right? Um, yeah. So it's described and left completely up to your imagination. And, and the next thing that we see happen in that sequence is this victim's husband goes out to the garden and he just starts tearing out these tomato plants and he, he's just losing it. And the, the cops follow him out there and they're like, um, sir, what's going on? What do you, what's wrong with the plants or whatever? And he says, yeah, my wife planted these tomato plants. When I left, they were still green. Now I've returned and they're bright red and she's not even here to see them. What is the point? And then this man just like smashes a tomato on the ground and he just like wails on the front lawn. And oh man, that that was that got me right in the gut, man. What about you? Yeah. No, absolutely. And then the, Kurosawa is such a master that he doesn't just leave it there. Then he zooms in on the smashed tomato on yes. the ground twice. Yeah. Um, just so you really get all the feels, apparently. Um, yeah, man, that that's it's incredibly powerful scene. And, and only one thing I want to add there is, you know, when when we say they don't see the body, that's very common in like you know, a creature from the Black Lagoon kind right. of era. You know, where it's like, oh, the monster's gonna get me, and then the censors are like, nope, no body for you. This is not a movie where it's like the body shot got cut out. No, Kurosawa wasn't allowed to show it. He is. It is so obviously not even. Like, we don't, like, get a toe or, you know, like, a bloody hand or something like that. It's just not—it's so not what he's trying to convey here. No. His mission—again, I think in talking about humanity, his mission is not, um, you know, ooh, what's that? Oh, my gosh, you know, kind of a shock factor. It's look at the human cost of this senseless kind of violence. Right. Look at how this affects everyone. And uh, and so for that reason, I think it it, it is— it's in, it's totally intentional and it's more effective. And in my later in the movie, he's he's not afraid to show violence on screen, right? Like we obviously, see, yeah, yeah, we see like this the the standoff kind of sequence at the end is is, I mean, it's not like dudes stabbing each other and blood gouting and anything like that, but it is rough, you know what I mean? So I don't yeah. I don't feel like he is like you said, it's not it, there's no way it's a censorship thing, but. Um, in, in, in a noir way, I just want to bring up one other thing before we get to like the last kind of where, where, where it all lands and feel free to interject here at any point, Justin. But I think that the, um, the plot devices that are planted early on that come up in in the end, like as he's figuring it out are, are just like genius. You know, you've seen like clues like this that are laid in like a procedural story, in like noir movies and other like mystery stories or whatever, even like murder mysteries. And they, they come back in such a great, like clever way. The one thing that I, I wrote down the, the white linen suit, right? Like Mm. we hear that he purchased a white linen suit way early on, like halfway through the movie or something. It, it kind of just sits there for a while. They're, they're, they're tracking down this person to get to this person to finally, uh, get to Yusa, who's the guy who they they assume stole the gun and did, uh, or at least is the possessor of the gun at this point, rather. And um, so they mention like, well, he blew a bunch of the money that he stole in this white linen suit. Well, later on in the movie, during this, I think, brilliant cross-cutting sequence, which can be done very, very poorly, right? When you got A action and B action, and you're cross-cutting between them to kind of try to help build tension or tell uh, a sprawling story, you know, visually with with more than one location. 
Um, we've got the hotel that Sato is at, and he's really like hot on the heels. He thinks he's got this guy. And then uh, Murakami is at the apartment with um, uh, the girlfriend, uh, Harumi and her mother, and they're trying to get this final piece of information out of her, but she is like, you know, her lips are sealed. She will not give it up, and they just know she's got it. The mom is pleading with her. So there's this drama playing out where Murakami is just basically like putting the heat on them, not not leaving the apartment, and uh, Sato's at the hotel, and he is right there. He's saying to the hotel guy, lock the back door, and he goes to make the call, you know, like put out, put, you know, get me some backup or whatever he's saying. And he calls, and these things happen in quick succession. And as this is happening, we just see the shot of the staircase, the hotel owner's wife with their kid, who she's just trying to quiet the baby. And she says, quiet, there's a policeman in the next room, and he's going to arrest you if you don't be quiet, just as a joke. She has no idea that on the steps, a, a pair of legs in a white linen suit just walk into frame. You know what I mean? And I think that is... Yeah masterful you know what i mean because Absolutely. we haven't seen this guy's face yet and it's just the, the tension there is i don't even it's so good um what did you yeah. think about that whole cross-cutting sequence where we we find sato in the rain at the end oh it's it's brilliant dude i mean you you laid out most of it and i think the the drama that unfolds at the tail end of that is just as incredible where with the dress you know the, yeah dude like she's just spinning around in the dress that yusa has bought her you know, and then her mom just like rips it off of her. Yeah. Um. It man, it's just everything is so freaking human here. Just the shame and the the joy and the anger, the angst. It's all there, man. Yeah. Um. In, in spades. Um. And when I, I I found really impressive too when you don't know what happens because uh, uh Sato has like turned his back in the phone booth and then Yusa makes a run for it. So and, and all you see is from Sato's perspective, you only see Yusa running in the glass of yeah. the phone booth, and he runs out after him. And then you just they they cut back again, and you just hear the shots over the phone. Yes. Oh man, and that phone it is doesn't just get better. Than hanging that. there off the hook, and the music from the lobby is just kind of blaring through it. It's oh, yeah, it's there. And there's some stuff right, like there's little details too. Right in that scene you mentioned, where he's like, "Hey, I forgot my i I don't have my gun today. Let me let me have your gun." He he just sees this child's toy on the banister. It's like a little duck or something or a little like little figurine. And he just yeah. picks it up for a second and just kind of smiles at it and puts it back down. It's like reminding us, right? Like this mm -hmm. guy has kids. The stakes right. are high, right? Like right. <laughs> it's not it's not beating you over the head with it, but it's just a reminder. It's like he he's a fully formed dude. And then the next sequence we see him like lying gut shot in the rain or whatever. It's, yeah. it's, it's brutal. Um, now let's, let's get to the final, uh, the final minutes here. Cause I think when people think about what Kurosawa inspired, right. They think about, uh, you know, Yojimbo and Sanjiro directly being adapted into the spaghetti Westerns, but this is a precursor to both of those by, by a few years. And the standoff in the field is, man, I don't know if I've seen a better Western standoff in a noir movie ever. You know what yeah. I mean? Especially because one of them is unarmed. It, yes, exactly. And the 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 levels of tension here are, I think, just so well set up. Right? We have the guy has, uh, uh, excuse me, Yusa has the gun. Right? The gun has three bullets. We know that. And Murakami is, like you said, unarmed. So he's just he's there because he's there. Right? He's at the end of the road. He's found the guy. The gun is in his hand. But what does is, what is Kurosawa do to set up the tension here? It's in an empty field with no one around except 
this house off in the distance, right? Just far enough where you can hear this woman rehearsing the piano out, out of the open window. So you're hearing that piano music and they just stand there in silence to this gorgeously framed shot, which we haven't mentioned, which I think kind of goes without saying, this movie is beautiful. Like everything about it is beautiful. Justin, r just run down that last sequence for us with the 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 two men fighting over the gun and the the piano stuff. So Murakami knows, like, okay, well, I can't. There's no point in running. I'm less than ten feet away from this guy. Right. And Yusa finally decides, like, uh, I guess I can't outrun this guy, so I guess I'll have to kill him. But he obviously, you know, Yusa is a coward. He's admitted he's a coward before in the movie. So he doesn't like. He is not like some psychopath, you know, that is just you know sh ready to shoot him between the eyes. It's obvious in his, his demeanor that he doesn't really want to do that, but he feels like, you know, a, a mad dog he's called several times in this yes. movie. So I think that really comes through in that guy's performance in a really good way. So he fires around. Bam! It hits it hits Murakami in the, in the left arm, uh, as I recall. And uh, it's not really... We just see blood on his hand, and, and he doesn't really use that arm for most of the, the following sequence. Yep. So what is most interesting to me about that portion is that um, it, it tells the sad truth, <laughs> which I guess is just universal, that um, that if you need help, most of the time people will not help you. <laughs> right. I remember a story from um, from a sergeant uh, in, uh, a retired sergeant in California, in Alameda County, and, and he talked about working in the uh, good old city of Hayward. And he was a motor cop, meaning that he rode a, a motorcycle. So one day he's he's going through the streets of Hayward early in the morning. It's commute hour. Lots of cars on the road, obviously. And uh, somebody, bam, just nails him right on his bike, and then and then flies off like, oh crap, I hit a cop, or maybe they meant to. Who knows, right? And this Harley is pinned on top of this sergeant, and there's no he can't freaking get up, right? Right. So what do the cars start start doing? There's people everywhere. People looking at him on both sides of the road. What does everyone do? Nothing. Nothing, dude. He just lays there, and cars keep going by, and kids are pointing at him and whatever, and he's like, crap in a hat, you know? So, obviously, he's able to get on the radio, but it's going to be a while before anyone gets there. So, the only people that came to help him were other uh, motor cops from um, San Francisco Police, a nearby police agency, and they were on their way to work, actually. And so, they come around from the other side of the freeway and get off, pick the bike up, dust him off, and, you know, get him the help he needs. But it's just, it's so you, you go back to Kurosawa, and you have this scene where, you know, and this lady that's playing the piano, she gets up, she hears a gunshot. What in the world is that noise, you know? Looks out the window, sees two guys standing in a field, one of them pointing a gun at the other, and then just goes back to playing the piano. Right. Now, in her defense, does she know that Murakami is a police officer? Obviously not. So the, the point probably that Kurosawa was trying to make, if there is one, is not just like, you know, hey, if you're the police, sometimes you're on, the, you're on your own. I think it's that people do not want to get involved generally. Yeah. Even if, like, that lady's probably completely normal, if not maybe a little obsessed with, you know, piano practice. She, I think she represents a, a real truth that even if you pass an accident on the side of the road, unless you, like, see children screaming, most people are like, eh, somebody else will take care of that, right? And, yeah. And, I mean, I think we, we've we've all done it probably. Um it's uh, it's just a sad truth that it's like, wow, I don't really know how to help there, um, but I'm not even going to try. Yeah, <laughs> like I guess I guess they'll figure it out, and I don't really want to be involved. The way that it, the way that it, like you know, her her playing stops, and then they both like 
clearly they both wait because like he could charge him even though he doesn't have the gun right you know murakami could charge him or just try something crazy at this point you'd kind of believe that he'd do anything you know but the piano playing stops and they both wait while she does that and then she goes and she sits back down and then it's like there's this dead silence while they just stare at each other and then she continues playing and it's like okay it's back on you know what i mean like that right (laughs) that is so good and and then there's this hand to hand just what I love about this kind of like scene, like physical struggle is every bit of this is believable. None of it, you know, this is not a stylized Kung Fu movie, which there's a perfectly, you know, adequate place for uh, often in another genre, right? Like for martial arts dudes to show their prowess and for things to be a completely different genre, like a ballet is a different genre, right? But this is like two guys who are just desperate to, win you know two guys who are desperate to win one of them like you said is like a scared rabid dog and the other one is the last man standing essentially because his partner's been shot and the way that this the way that this conflict comes to a close is so so good because he finally slaps the cuffs on yusa and yusa he just looks up at the sky and he sees you know a flower petal here and a flower petal there almost like to see like what did i like the world around me is so bright and open and what the heck have I done? And then he just breaks down, you know, and he just screams like a, like a, like a young child almost is what I read it as. Uh, Yeah. And then we have the final kind of button on the end of it, right. Between, uh, between the two cops, which is really, really well done. It's, It's not overly long, but it's, it's Kurosawa's, period at the end of the sentence i feel like right yeah i I mean i i agree man he i think kurosawa if you watch any of his other stuff um it's kind of uh uh, again i think a a difference largely um between western and eastern um filmmaking styles and storytelling styles the the button on the end it's it's like dude it doesn't take very long to put a button on right right okay we're done and that's kind of how this movie ends there's no it, this is not like Gone with the Wind or something where you have this long, lingering shot or right. sweeping score. Hey, they, they both have their place. I'm not saying one is better than the other because they think that's stupid. Um, and for for this movie, this is what makes sense. Um, and so Murakami, you know, um, just, you know, they kind of debrief on what happened with Yusa. And Sato uh, commends him and tells him, like, hey, man, just forget about that. You're going to forget about him. Because you're going to go out and do great things and, and solve other crimes. You're going to help other people. Um, and I thought there was a really good line, Travis. I don't remember if it's in this very last scene um, that we're talking about right now or earlier on. But I think a really good piece of advice that Sato gives Murakami is um, he says, look, man, don't forget why you're doing what you're doing. Um, and that, that's mm-hmm. exactly what the subtitle said. Look, man. No. But whatever it said, um, he, his his point was, you know, Murakami, you can't forget that you're doing what you're doing because um, how how much how many problems does one lone wolf make for the sheep? How yeah. much carnage does that cause, right? And it's such a great, such a more humble thing than I, I don't know if you've heard of this in some um, some corners of our culture, Travis, where it's like, well, are you a sheep? Or are you a yeah. are you a sheep dog? It's like, oh, get get a get a break, you know, like. <laughs> And, and so that's not that's not Sato's point at all, right? He's not like so. The point Murakami is we're going to be freaking samurai warrior wolves or yeah, something, you yeah. know? He's like, no, you just got got to remember there are people out there right. that are like the wolf that are gonna wreck carnage on innocent people. So you what, whatever you're just a man, 
but right. you you can go stop that, right? Yep. So it's 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 not this like you know like get get a bunch of vitamin S and go hit the gym hard so you can <laughs> you know like choke people out or something yeah. you know and defeat bad guys that way. It's just this I thought really humble and and very true realization mm-hmm. of like bad stuff happens, but we can we can help that you know, not happen or we can pick up the pieces and help try to solve the problem. Yeah. They're, they're looking at the window in the last scene and, and I, and he says there will be all sorts of cases under those rooftops today. And then, and then he says, and a few good people, right? Like, yeah. And then he says, you'll soon forget about this, right? Like he, he really is the voice of reason in the story. Um, and when I say jaded, I think, you know, to refer to someone as a rabid dog is, is a little jaded. He's not wrong, right? Like there, <laughs> there are similarities, especially when he says right. that line about like a rabid dog finds a straight path. So then they go back to the girlfriend. But I do think like they're, they're both so real. You know what I mean? Like they're, yeah. neither of them are perfect, but they're both just absolutely real. And I really feel like if you just give it a few years, one is about to turn into the other. And that's not the yeah. worst thing in the world because in this case, the end result is not a jaded police officer who just has lost his view of humanity. It's a jaded police officer who's just like, this is the way things are and the world sucks, but you know, keep your chin up, dude, or something like that. Right. So right. let's wrap it up in our uh, section. We like to title, is it worth your time? It's really worth your time. Um, I, I would go so far as to say this should probably be required viewing if you're thinking of taking some kind of public service or especially yeah. law enforcement kind of job because this balances the reality of the kind of problems we face with in humanity, especially if you are in that career field. But it also does it with humanity yeah. and says, like, you know, you don't just have to drink yourself to death if you do this. Um, you can you can still have a family. You can still be functional. Uh, but you have to you have to have a certain kind of mindset that that you know that maybe maybe it's somewhat jaded, but it's it's calloused, I guess, kind of in the same way that a fighter's shins uh, get a bunch of scar tissue sure. over them so they can kick. Um, it, it's not for the point of of you know becoming detached and cynical, you know, cranky old man, and so that you you can be effective at what you do and um, and help people that need it. So. I would absolutely recommend this movie, not just to people who might be interested in law enforcement, but to um, anybody who's interested in Kurosawa, in detective movies, in just a good freaking movie. I think this is uh, probably maybe maybe even more accessible. I, I I don't know what if the average viewer cares about genre pictures or not, but yeah. this seems like less of a genre picture. Like uh, you know, if the if the time period stuff is is a, a no go for you and you don't really want to go back to feudal Japan, yeah, uh, then come on to friendly post war Japan. <laughs> um, it's and, it's uh, so bright and cheery. Ha- yes, and yeah, have a blast in yeah. a stray dog. So I I would rewatch this uh, often, man. Yeah. I mean, more than once a year. It's it's super. Super phenomenal. Wow. More than once a year. You don't say that very often, so that's high praise on our uh on our refusing to be on a binary stars thumbs system. Uh <laughs> for me, uh this was really enjoyable. Um I think if you're going into this uh again and you're not like a huge forties film fan or even noir film fan, I think you just like prepare yourself for some really deliberate pacing because the story yeah take some time to um, lay out all of the groundwork and it 
the 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 question is not should I never should I should I ever or never watch a movie that is you know quote unquote slow. The question is is it purposeful and does it pay off? You know what I mean? Like there, yeah. we we both talked about Mank a few weeks ago, and we were like. I've seen a lot of slow movies. There, nothing happened in the first right. forty minutes of Mank. Right? <laughs> this, this. Uh, don't be tempted to feel that way about this movie because the deliberate nature of the beginning—it's laying important groundwork that absolutely pays off. The last act of this movie is 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 wrapping up things that it's been saying all along so well. You know what I mean? And it does things with genre that are really like kind of fun i would say and and um they're not afraid to be like a genre movie in a sense like it's not Mm -hmm. that kind of movie that looks at noir or detective storytelling or that kind of thing and it it's like well i'm gonna make one that's just the real version forget all that fluff no it has fun as a film the the whole thing with the weather is it's almost theatrical you know what i mean the idea that it's like everybody's hot and sticky at the beginning and then the rain would come when when everything gets really bad near the end like it it it, it it's ambitious and big but it's also saying things like m you know what i mean like we are the first movie we did of this whole podcast was a post-war 30s movie from germany where a police procedural brought a man to his knees and humanized him and left both me and you at least and i think most people who have watched this movie with our jaws on the floor right because it does all the things you want it to do to be kind of an interesting cat and mouse movie. But more than that, way more important than that is the scene after the, the cuffs are on, you know, after the yeah. cuffs are on and you have, you have the moment of Yusa just really like realizing what, what have I done? And uh, all these characters have interesting journeys. It says a lot about people, you know, just people and what it means to be in a, in a time and a place that is ridden with crime and still see the light at the end of the tunnel, still see that people have some inherent dignity and worth. And um, for that reason, heck yes, it's worth your time. Goodness gracious, if a movie can do any of that, let alone all of those things, it's worth uh, all your time. And I, yeah, I'd, I'd, I'd watch this whenever, um, I think. I think before I rewatch this, I would like to tick off a couple more Kurosawa boxes, uh, but certainly rewatchable to a once a year kind of a, a time frame for me. And that's that for Stray Dog, folks. Justin, that didn't disappoint. That was a good one. No. Yeah. Yeah, man. And uh, what, what do we got coming up next week? Next week should be completely different and equally fun. Okay. We have Adam's Rib, which is sort no. of a battle of the sexes kind of romantic comedy uh with spencer tracy and katherine hepburn and we have a couple of ladies joining us to balance out the field annie and ellie are coming back awesome that should be blast man i'm looking forward to it should be great we hope you'll join us next week bye bye let the movie speak Hey, since you're still here and still listening, thank you by the way, we'd like to ask an additional favor of you. We have social media. 
It's a thing on the internet. And all you need to do is find us on Instagram or Twitter or Facebook and like and subscribe. I know this is annoying, but we have to ask you because we want more people to hear the show. In addition to that, if you could rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, we would greatly appreciate it. See you next week. Bye.